Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. With me, as she is on those rare occasions when she is not on holiday, moving house or suppressing the rights of villains on her sizable feudal land holdings, is commissioning editor Thea Lenduzzi. Hello, and who was on holiday last week? I oh, was on I holiday. think it was you. You were on holiday last week. I was week. not on holiday. You I were was working toiling. From, you were working from home. I was. I worked an, from home. It's a holiday. And then the, the job was done. And I done. came back to work. Yes. Work and then work. So was it good week off? <laughs> Moving on. Remember, if you want to subscribe to the TLS Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for six pounds. Coming up on the show this week, we have a classic special in the TLS. So we shall be talking to our very own classics editor, national treasure and public intellectual Mary Beard. In particular, we might consider this astonishing fact. This month there has been published the first ever translation of the Odyssey by a woman. A woman? Translating Homer? Whatever will this politically correct, enfeebled and right-on society think of next, etc, etc. We'll also consider the life of Edward Garnett. Who he, I hear you cry? Well, according to former poet laureate Andrew Motion, he was a publisher who was one of the great tastemakers of the 20th century. Andrew is on the line from Baltimore to tell us more. And speaking of the unjustly neglected, did you know that November the 11th is International Dorothy Dunnett Day? Could you name anything by Dorothy Dunnett? Am I entitled to use the pun who done it? All questions which we shall attempt to answer thanks to Rowan Mateson, who has reviewed the six-volume reissue of the Limond Chronicles. Let's begin our consideration of the classics issue with some thoughts about the Odyssey. It is, of course, perfectly fitting to feel nostalgic about this epic poem, looking back upon it as a tour de force of storytelling, an urtext of quest narratives. Nostos, after all, is a central theme of the story, the Greek word used by Homer meaning a return home. And surprising, too, that the Odyssey is so susceptible to modern and reinterpretation. The very ideas of home and belonging are considered especially problematic now. The mutual obligations of visitor and host, of refugee and refuge, which prominently feature in the original, have become pressing issues of social policy. To Daniel Mendelssohn, classics professor at Bard College, the Odyssey is also about fathers and sons, and so a fertile text to reinterpret his own filial relationship. According to Helen Morales, his book on the subject is a fine achievement, especially sensitive to those timeless snaggings of human interaction concerning how difficult it is to understand our parents, the small ways in which we hurt one another and the tender moments. Morales also reviews a new translation of the Odyssey by Emily Wilson. It is astounding to relate, though true, that this is the first published English translation of the epic by a woman. Morales poses the reasonable question that follows. Does the gender of the translator make a difference that can be detected on the page? The answer to that must surely be yes, mustn't it? Wilson herself has referred to the critical distance inevitable between female translators and the male authors of the predominantly male canon. But might also there be profitably creative tension created when a woman considers the masculine world of soldiering or issues around marital fidelities experienced by the errant husband? In the TLS this week, we also look more generally at the history of women in the classics. Barbara Graziosi reviews Yopi Prynne's Ladies Greek, and Donna Zuckerberg considers the writings of 30s classicist Edith Hamilton. To discuss it all with us now is the woman of classics, Mary Beard. 
thank you, Stig. Mary, <laughs> welcome. Uh, shall we start with, with the Odyssey? Why hasn't it been translated by a woman before? No, it is was absolutely gobsmacked about that because what has always been said about the Odyssey is, of course, that it's a very female poem, and you get you know the wonderful Samuel Butler, you know, hundred and something years ago, you know, claiming that his famous book, The Authoress of the Odyssey, claiming it was written by a woman. Um, so there's something very, very odd that, given the way that it's always been slightly feminised, that it's never been translated by a woman. The Iliad, you know, just got in there first, only by a couple of years, and, mind you. Well, what's the answer to the question uh, Helen Morales asked? Does, does the gender of the translator make a difference, do you think? I'd like to think so, and I think that in in some ways the answer to that, in the way that Morales puts it, has to, and, and I think also Emily Wilson herself, and that the different positioning of the woman translator in relation to their exclusion or inclusion into the text, in some sense it, it is bound to make a difference. I think that w- what's interesting is that Morales points to some places where, in a way, you can see that happening, but they're, they're quite small and specific places. Like, I, mean, I thought it's very telling that Wilson doesn't use the words that we usually use when we translate the Odyssey, all about the, you know, the housemaids, yeah. the maids, right? Um, and that comes everywhere, you know, who's in Penelope's house, who's in Odysseus's house, and they're the maids. And, you know, what she says is, look, actually, you need to say slaves. There's a lack of coyness, I think, which Morales... It's very political, isn't it? That's the thing that struck me. Well, the choice of the word slave certainly um, resonates more and and brings it... I think there is something terribly 19th century about maid. (laughs) Um, But what Morales goes on to to talk about, I think, is interesting, and I think it's less less easy to tie into gendered aspects in any in, in a kind of big way, which is that what Wilson has done is, in a sense, put a new political spin. Yeah, I, I, I was very struck by that. This is the idea that the Cyclops is the more to be pitied than than Odysseus type. Yes, I and mean, that um, when Wilson is is thinking and translating and thinking about Homer book, Odyssey book nine, in which um, Odysseus fetches up on the Cyclops island and a very famous instant in the, in the Odyssey when uh, they get imprisoned, Odysseus and his band get imprisoned in the cave and they only escape after the Cyclops has eaten, <laughs> eaten several of Odysseus's men and then Odysseus has got his men to skewer out the Cyclops' single eye. For, for years, actually, there's been a lot of discussion about that part of the poem because traditionally it's seen as a bit of the poem in which um, civilization in the shape of Odysseus meets barbarity in the shape of the Cyclops. Um, that people have long been pointing out, look, you know, that it isn't quite, Cyclops isn't quite as barbaric as we have tended to paint him. And people have pointed to the very ordered nature of his world, the fact that he loves his sheep and things like this. That's all, all, I think, been very well taken because it has, those kind of readings have tended to question the simplicity of the standoff between Odysseus and the Cyclops. But Wilson goes one step further, and she calls that book a pirate in the shepherd's cave, which actually goes beyond a certain ambivalence about how we're to look at the Cyclops and really makes the Cyclops the victim, the poor old victim, the shepherd's cave. And Odysseus uh, is the bad guy pirate. Is this political correctness gone mad, Mary? (laughs) Well, I, I never like saying yes to the question. <laughs> this Nor should you. Nor should you. Uh, gone mad. It, it is quite, let me put it this way, tactfully, it is a very strong reading uh, of that bit of the poem, which somehow does constructively overlook the fact that Cyclops is a cannibal. <laughs> now, you know, it would be a great uh, translation to teach with, yeah. because... It's really put its cards on the table. And I've not read this yet carefully, but I think that it somewhat removes the very kind of teasing and intriguing ambivalence that the Homeric text sets up. You know, this is not goody versus baddie, and you just have to decide who's the goody and who's the baddie. 
this is a problematic standoff between different versions of what it is to be civilised. This is Helen Morales. She says even more radical is the handling of Helen. And what, what, what's so interesting about what Wilson does with Helen? She turns Helen into a much more clear victim, which again is partly there in the Homeric text. You know, I think, and anybody who thinks that you know these earliest works of uh, of Greek literature are uh, kind of simple stories in which morality is not questioned are, are seriously wrong. And there's always a question mark about quite how sympathetic we feel to Helen and to what extent she is a victim, rather than, of course, the very cause and the willful cause of the war that cost so many people their lives, the Trojan War. And there's one particular bit of the translation that Morales picks out, which in Homer, uh, Helen describes herself, actually, as cunopis. I mean, it's quite hard to know what cunopis means, but it means something that is dog-eyed, dog-faced. Daniel Mendelssohn calls it, translates as bitch, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, shameless bitch. Now, yeah. what Wilson does is she keeps that dog aspect, but says that the Greeks made my face the cause that hounded them. Now, so what you're doing is you're, you're pushing further the responsibility away from Helen, whereas for all the difficulties of translating Cunopis, dog-eyed, dog-faced, it is a pejorative term. There's a great line, Mary, in Yopi Prin's book, which I think is probably relevant here, about the incursion of women into classics. And she says, duty to Greek and duty to women could clash, and they sometimes still do. Is this what we're talking about, where at one level, if, if a writer or a translator is pursuing a progressive agenda, that might mean stepping a little bit further away from the source? Yes, and you know, I, I suspect that Emily Wilson would, would be quite happy to plead a little bit guilty to that charge. Because the way that you make these ancient texts kind of continue to mean and to mean different things and to squeeze them for all they've got is, of course, to have some kind of agenda. Um, now, you know, I think, so you, you know, you then say, well, does that mean anything goes? Well, no, of course it doesn't mean anything goes. And, you know, Wilson, for one, and many of the, the women who translated the Greek in Yopi Prince's book knew Greek very well, but they are squeezing and subverting the language just a bit. And that's what really the, the dog-faced Cunopis example tells you. You know, Wilson is a shrewd enough reader and a, a, an experienced enough reader of the Greek to see the canine element. Yeah. But she's also brave enough, and it will annoy some people, and it will please others. She's brave enough to use that at a second-order level of, of literary construction and translation, I think. Should we stick with the, the subject of, of women, um, but make it a bit more modern, Mary? You've just published a book, haven't you, called Women in Power? I have indeed, Stick, yes. Uh, women in Power. Women in Power. What a... What a time to be doing it. Well, I'm interested in your thoughts on that because this week and indeed last week and the week before we've seen, you know, the continued outpourings of claims of sexual harassment in Westminster and, and then counter cries of witch hunt and flirting will be banned and all sorts of, I think, pretty embarrassing, shrieky things from, yeah. from some of the men yeah. involved. Uh, but is, it, is this a seismic moment in, in, in gender relations we're seeing? Is this, a, is this where things get better, do you think? I'd like to think so. Um, and I, I think it has been very striking that somehow following Harvey Weinstein and then the, the fallout from that, I think it does, it does feel a bit like a tipping moment. When what I argue in my book, you know, perhaps is a bit more pessimistic than that, which is really to say, look, if the exclusion of women, and particularly women's voices, I think, whether, whether spoken or written, if the exclusion of women's voices is something that goes back, not unmediated, but in a certain kind of direct line of descent, right back to the very beginning of Western culture, as we can see it in the Odyssey, for example, and the Iliad. You know, I think my book starts with the Odyssey and a very famous moment in the beginning when Penelope, Odysseus's wife, who's waiting for Odysseus to come home, comes downstairs from her from her upper rooms and he meets the bard who is singing terribly sad stories about how the men 
are having trouble getting back from the Trojan War. And Penelope quite reasonably says, some, you know, could you sing something a bit more cheerful, please? And her, her wet behind the ears kind of late teen or in age son, you know, as part of his kind of emancipation, says, oh, mother, shut up. Speech is man's business. Get back to your room, please. Now, I think we have embedded in the way we think about how language is used a male version of it. In some way, that is also connected to the kind of stuff that's been going on, not just in Westminster. I mean, I think there might be exacerbating circumstances in Westminster, but I think somehow to think that the kind of harassment that women get on a day-to-day basis you know, only happens in kind of celebrity environments is completely wrong. Yeah. There is some relationship between that and between the silencing of women, between women, in a sense, having, having no ready-made place in which to feel powerful. You know, I'd like to see it changing, and I think it has changed in my lifetime, but it's going to take more than a few protestations of reform and best behaviour on the part of a few parliamentarians to really make a difference. You know, this can't be, this can't be a bad start, but it's only a start. And there's lots more to do. Mary Beard, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Are you optimistic? Uh, do you think you're, you're living through a, a moment of significant cultural change? I hope so, but then most most times think they're living through that moment, don't they? And then people's attention moves the, on to the, the next things thing. things have possibly questioned, have they possibly over a period long enough have got better? I don't know. Well, yes, I'm sure they absolutely have, but I suppose I'm thinking of... I don't know, 1965 and, and Selma and, and the thought that maybe that was a tipping point. And then you look at where we are now or where where black people are in America now. And, and but, but, very but is that better? I mean, because it's not right. And it's, it's better. Not, is it better? It, so at what point? I suppose it's, I, I don't think, I don't tend to think of it as tipping points. Um, I tend to think of it as a slow plodding, um, slow plodding change, I suppose. It's never as fast as you would want it to be. I think that's um, I think that's that's probably right. And we didn't get to talk about Roman portable sundials. I know, I know. We ran out of time. (laughs) Just quickly, Thea, sell that story. It's by Greg Wolfe, and it's about the fact that in Rome you could wander around with they a... Had, yeah, they had such a thing as a portable sundial. It wasn't just that you you saw them in town square, these these town squares, these massive ones. Some people had small portable ones which could be adjusted depending on where they found themselves in the Roman Empire, which I just didn't think was possible. Yeah. And very ignorantly, I suppose, I thought that it, it a sundial just worked because it... it, it yeah, the I never sun and cast of. its shadow. I didn't think you would have to adjust it depending on your latitude. But, but you, of course you do. You do. And if anything, the piece is more interesting than that because it, it, it just shows how fascinated the Romans were with, with gadgets as well and gizmos. And Nothing's It was new. really just a talking point yeah. that they had around the table. Oh, have you seen my, my portable sundial? It's like basically an iPhone. The, <laughs> yeah, the iPhone of the day. Basically. And there were, there, were, there were hipsters bringing out their uh, portable sundials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's great <laughs> stuff. It's a lovely piece. Dorothy Dunnett is not, I think it's fair to say, a household name, perhaps not even in Scotland, where she was born in 1923 and died in 2001. But if our piece by Rowan Mateson this week is anything to go by, and we think it is, she might be one of the best or certainly most ambitious historical novelists you've never heard of. Dunnett's dense and dramatic six-volume saga, The Limond Chronicles, first published between 1961 and 1975, gallops across 16th-century Europe and beyond. From the review tells us the stony streets of Edinburgh to the opulent harem of Suleiman the Magnificent, from the steppes of Russia to the stormy seas of the North Atlantic. Which prompts one question, among many others. Can a book be too rollicking? No! (laughs) Well, that's that then. (laughs) Here to tell us more is Rowan Mateson, whose passionate account of the series leads me to believe she will indeed be celebrating International Dorothy Dunnett Day this year. Rowan, hello. Hello, thanks for having me. Before we consider the books, can you tell us a bit about the author? Because I I had never heard of her. So, I mean, who was Dorothy Dunnett? What's, What's her story? And is she well known in Scotland? Well, you know, she's better known in Scotland than, than uh, you make it sound, actually. They recently had a, a poll to f- come up with Scotland's favorite character. It was uh, run by the Scottish Book Trust, and her protagonist, Frances Crawford, was voted the favorite Scottish character. Really? Beating such uh, better-known names as, as Miss Jean Brodie, just for instance. <laughs> so she has a kind of a fan following that's, that's passionate, anyway. 
but it's true that she is not a household name. So she uh, was educated as an art historian and a portrait painter as she worked as a press officer in the government and uh, as a as a journalist. And when she complained at one point to her husband, Alistair Dunnett, that she couldn't find books that she wanted to read, he said, well, why don't you write them? <laughs> and that was the beginning of, of what became, I guess, a, a wonderful story. And, and the Limond Chronicles themselves, don't you then, well, I mean, perhaps you should set the scene. What, what roughly is the historical context with which she, um, she engages? Well, they're set uh, in Scotland and abroad during the early years of the reign of Mary, Queen of Scots. So while she's still a, a young child is when the series begins. And they focus a lot on the turbulence in Scotland at the time. But when the first book in the series begins, actually her hero, Francis Crawford, is himself an outlaw who's been accused of treason against the Scottish government. And he's back in Scotland on a quest to find uh, the man who has the evidence that will be the key to his restoration, both to, to political life and to its family, which is very important. So it has that kind of outlaw quality. Uh, I don't think it's too rollicking, but it certainly is, is a lot of intrigue and a lot of suspense and a lot of uh, action in the story. But a lot of the action and suspense is political. And one of his main concerns is to try to bring the warring factions of Scotland together, obviously with a, a regent and an infant queen, there's a lot of jockeying for position. And how literary is this? Because often historical fiction, I love historical fiction, by the way, I, I've never read this, but I'm, I'm by, in the process of buying the Limon Chronicles as a result of your review. But often historical fiction, and Hilary Mantel's maybe argues against this, is not considered especially literary. It's considered a bit cheap and a bit sort of fast moving, a bit rollicking, I suppose, is the term. How literary do you think this is? I think it's very literary, and, and Mantel is an interesting comparison. I think one of the reasons that Dunnett may not be better known than she is is, is she performs a really extraordinary kind of high-wire act between the kind of, of uh, detailed exposition that someone like Mantel is so good at in, in, say, her book on the French Revolution, A Place of Greater Safety, which is a very dense yeah. <laughs> uh, presentation of context. And then on the other side is, is sort of high melodrama of the, of the kind that we might think of as more swashbuckling genre fiction. And, and Dunnett manages to combine those two things, which we often think are, are incompatible. And so her books are very detailed. They're, they're relatively demanding um, in their analysis of, of context. But they're also, they have these very propulsive character-driven plots. And that's quite an electric combination. It's very intellectually challenging and satisfying on the one hand. And it's literary, uh, not just in its presentation, but in having lots of literary allusions and quotations and, and references. But it's also, it, it's very dramatic, and, and you read it in this kind of breathless excitement to find out what will happen to these people, people that you, uh, I anyway, come to believe in very passionately, even when they're doing things that if you were just to describe them out of context would sound absurd. For example? <laughs> For example, in the fourth book in the series uh, called Pawn in Frankincense, there's a live-action chess game. That sounds, br that sounds brilliant, I think. It, it is brilliant, but, you know, if you just think of that as, a, as an element in a realist novel, I think yeah. it, it would strain credulity a bit. <laughs> it's something that we, we see in Harry Potter, say, but we accept it because magic allows you to suspend your disbelief already. But when you arrive at that scene in, in Dunnett's care, it, it seems appropriate. It seems dramatically, um, I mean, it's extraordinary. It's a very, very dramatic and suspenseful scene. But when the price of, of a piece being taken is death, <laughs> and the, the pieces are all people that you know, and you really believe that this is the way that this battle of wits has been playing out across the, the chessboard of Europe needs to be resolved. It's, it's painful and thrilling, and again, it sounds kind of absurd, but she manages to make you really feel it as something that, that people might, might experience. So it, it feels natural to her drama in a way that, that you can't really quite imagine in, in Wolf Hall. Yeah. And, and this, this, um, this kind of this high-wire act, as you, as you put it, between the the kind of the intellectual and and the dramatic uh, there's a lot of, of of the conflict um in this book is sort of between mind and matter intellect and emotion and all of that sort of is contained in in the character of the hero who, who you mentioned before francis crawford of, of Limon. so tell us about him is he is he a vehicle for a more philosophical novel a more philosophical exploration uh, he is in a lot of ways and Dunnett herself said that that she wanted to explore the experiences of, of a classical hero. She said in her own foreword that she wanted to follow a, what she calls a gifted leader 
with a with a star-crossed career. And I think there is a lot of that. And one of the interesting themes of the series as a whole is, is the burden of, of leadership, the challenge of being someone truly exceptional. He's very young when the series begins. He's 16 when the action begins just before the series that, that ends up launching it. And, it. and it's a lot of effort to deal with the kind of charisma that he has that tends to attract acolytes and followers and, and imitators and people who depend on him and, and rely on him. And he's young and erratic and emotional uh, and also supremely intelligent. And it's, a, it's an effortful career for him to come to terms with his own strength and try to find a way to use it that's not self-destructive. So it's, it's got that very personal quality to it as he, as he proceeds through a series of very high-profile uh, kind of appointments or, or quests across the series. Uh, do you think uh, this is undervalued then, uh, as we look at as we look at it? But not in Scotland, as you say, because because the, the characters are still loved. But as a piece of writing, I'm I'm struck by the fact that you talk about your seven your paperbacks from the seventies are have those tawdry covers, which you always get with sort of pulp fiction in in the seventies. I've got a lot of books like that, and at one level, it makes them fun and schlocky now when you look back on it. But do you think at some point it was missold almost as this is a sort of forever amber style? Um, romp. Yeah, I think that's an excellent comparison. I, I think that's exactly what, what happens. And although we all know not to judge a book by its cover, we inevitably do. It governs our, our choices and our assumptions about it. And the sense that these are, uh, to use that word rollicking again, that these are, these are kind of um, unserious but, but entertaining books, it, it's not really helped by a lot of the marketing that, that they've had. I mean, just for instance, on, on the cover description of, of my own 70s edition of the final book in the series. It describes the plot, a bastard nobleman searching for his heritage, the beautiful virgin bride he married but could not bed, move towards the climax that will mean greatness and fulfillment or else disgrace, destruction and damnation. And <laughs> I would totally buy a book so with that cover. You know, by the way. to bed. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's a kind of uh, hyperbole that, that, you know, kind of purple prose that yeah. I think even though, as a matter of fact, that's a pretty good summary of the plot, <laughs> it really doesn't convey anything of what the book is actually about or what the people in the book are actually like. And, and although I agree, I obviously I did <laughs> grab a book with that description, a lot of people would turn away from it and think, well, th- this is just going to be foolish or sentimental or... Well, I remember, read, I remember reading as a kid Dennis Wheatley's... Um, he did a lot of historical romances in the, uh, set in the 18th century, and the covers are all like that. Um, but you would never argue that that was literature, I don't think, and, or, or Forever Amber being the same thing. You wouldn't argue, see it, that it's a serious book. Um, you'd argue that it, it's sort of disposable genre fiction. And, and you, you feel in some ways that's where she's been categorised. I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I think it's easy to underestimate the literary qualities of, of genre fiction or to yeah. think that those are firmer distinctions th- than they really ever have been. But because she does again, kind of straddle these lines between being, between melodrama and, and entertainment on the one hand and, and a really kind of intellectual high seriousness on the other. Uh, I think the marketing has tended to play up the one at the expense of the other. Now, the new series has an extremely, um, I don't know, uh, tasteful <laughs> set of covers, which almost pushes it too far the other way. It might, it might make people think that these will be more like maybe Hilary Mantel than they are. I mean, I'm a great admirer of, of Mantel, but her books are in, intense in that kind of probing psychological way. They won't leave you breathless emotionally in the yeah. same way. I think a place of greater safety. I think Lucy Dallas, who works in the TLS, is, has the rare distinction of having read it twice. Wow. Oh, gosh. Well. Which, which, which seems to me, having <laughs> nearly read it once. It's very good as well. I mean, I, I don't mean because it is actually beautifully written and it's, and it, it's interesting, but it's, it's so dense that unless you keep momentum on it, it's easy to, it's easy to get a bit stuck, I think. Probably. Right, and also A.S. Byatt's The Children's Book comes to mind as yeah. another book that's historical fiction that's not afraid of exposition, and I, I welcome that. I think that's that's wonderful, and it, with an assured prose stylist, it's it's not pedantic. It can be thrilling in its own way, and I think Dunnett can easily match them in terms of the intricacy and the, the attention to detail of, of her of her uh, context. But, you know, George Eliot, who, who rather fumbled her attempt at, at historical fiction, commented that it was particularly challenging to write because it, it demanded both accurate knowledge and creative vigor. And I think that that is true of the best historical fiction. It somehow manages to combine both of those things, the, uh, the erudition that's required to make it very convincing, but also the drama that's required to make it very exciting. And actually, and, the, the reverse is true, that t- the, the cheap stuff is very cheap. There's an Elmore Leonard quote that he talks when his rules of writing, he says, 
he was reading historical fiction that was just full of rapes and adverbs. Oh, uh, and, and the idea that it's just this, this sort of constant hit at relatively easy uh, plot movements. That, 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 that can be a problem with the genre, can't it, I think? We have some really excellent historical novelists writing uh, writing today. I think of someone like Sarah Moss, for instance, yeah. mm-hmm. book Bodies of Light, um, or Mantell, again, with, with the Wolf Hall trilogy, uh, and and think that they offer a lot of evidence against the idea that historical fiction can't be literary. But there's something kind of reticent also about their fiction, as if they're wary of being mistaken for writing that kind of swashbuckling, dramatic fare. Yeah. You know, and and they, they are so uh, scrupulous in their prose that, that there's, they're almost seem self-consciously avoiding anything that might sound like it's purple prose, it might sound like it's melodrama. So even though you can get very caught up in their, in their fiction, there's a kind of care. And I think Dunnett has a kind of fearlessness about this, that she's such a good writer that these genre distinctions don't matter. I think we're probably going to have to leave it there, but on a parting note, um, perhaps you can tell us how you're going to be celebrating International Dorothy Dunnett Day, because I'm sure you are. <laughs> Well, probably by by rereading some favorite scenes and yeah. and uh, is that a real sharing. thing? Is that a real thing, right? Be, be it is well, a there's real a thing. society as well, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. There's Dorothy a Dorothy Dunnett Society. Yeah. I actually only learned about it a few years ago, and it was very exciting to discover that there are other people who share what I, I for decades have thought of as kind of a, a quirky private reading passion. So it's exciting to know that that the people around the world. I don't think there's a Halifax chapter though. So, do you think the other novels will follow if if indeed they haven't already? Um they're in process okay. uh, in, in the reissues. She has a standalone novel, King Hereafter, which is a, a very thrilling story of the historical Macbeth. And this just sounds great. Out. This just sounds amazing, right? I can't believe this existed all this time and I didn't <laughs> and know didn't about know. it. They, they are wonderful. And actually, I just read King Hereafter recently myself and was absolutely mesmerized by it. It has a, a story of a, of a boat race that, that you have to read to, to believe. A medieval Scottish boat race? Mm-hmm. Say no more. (laughs) Well, nothing could make me happier with Dorothy Dunnett Day coming than to spread the gospel of Dunnett and hope that more people will read her because uh, really it is a very thrilling experience. Well, listen, that is you have done that in this review and you've done that on this podcast. I hope people will scurry off now, like like uh, us, and go and read it. Uh, Rowan, thank you so much. Thank you very much. A medieval Scottish boat race. <laughs> What's not to love? What, what more do you want in a boat? I get the feeling you're not a historic. I've said this before, though. I don't. You're not a historical think, fiction. Well, I think it's only because I, I sort of struggle uh, to define it sometimes. Sometimes something that I would that you might not immediately think of it as as being a historical yeah. novel. I, it doesn't come immediately to my mind as oh, I liked that because it was a historical. A work didn't of Toby Listing make the argument piece. War oh, and Peace was yeah. historical. Well, I mean, the the argument argument can and has been made effectively. I sp- yeah, I yeah. Mean, I don't see why not. Um, but, but yeah, I, I suppose that's not the thing that immediately jumps um, to the forefront of my mind. I, I think of a novel and I think, oh, I remember that because I enjoyed it. I don't. See, I embrace the genre. I do. I, I do think genre fiction is wonderful because yeah. it's deliberately hitting notes that you're expecting. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about historical fiction you kind of know more or less the narrative arc very often you kind of know what you're expecting if it's even to the point where this is this is can be difficult that you know that a book set in the medieval period is going to start with it snowing <laughs> there's always a, there's always a there's always maybe a, a lone wolf yeah up on a, a hill exactly there's all, they're always in, they're always in the wet <laughs> yeah. they're all snowy and they're sort of they're sort of stomping around sort of shivering and you just mm-hmm. know that the atmosphere is kind of and that can become so cliched it's awful mm-hmm. but when it's elevated just enough and mm-hmm. Hilary Mantel elevates it a long way and it'd be interesting to see where Dorothy Dunnett goes yeah oh interesting as well because obviously this is and this is a point that Rowan makes in her piece this is clearly a work of maximalism yeah um whereas the current trend uh, the trend at the moment is is for minimalism or, yeah. or slightly sort of yeah more sober more sober prose and so, I don't think you go to genre writing for, yeah. for so, sobriety you yeah. do go for a bit of embracing all the sort of sights and smells mm. and everything. Well, the tides have definitely turned if they had turned the wrong way in that um, Dorothy Dunnett is, is is making a comeback because yeah. I heard I heard word of a TV series really? commissioned of, of these chronicles. She's making a comeback now, uh, definitely. Yeah. Now, she's, now, well, we've, now she's been in the TLS. Yeah, now. Well, yeah. in fact, she had been in the TLS before, to be honest. Yeah. The collective, the royal we, yeah. had never forgotten her. No. Just I was unaware of her. I'd never heard of her at all. Well, I hope, I hope people... We are writing our wrongs. Yeah, exactly. Lovely stuff. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. According to Andrew Motion, Edward Garnett was an insider who considered himself an outsider, a literary backroom boy, and one of the great tastemakers of the 20th century. He should perhaps be best known as the publisher of Conrad, overseeing his early works up to the nigger of Narcissus. Conrad called him his father in letters. Other writers with whom he was associated include Somerset Maugham, Arnold Bennett, John Galsworthy. He was friends with Edward Thomas and D.H. Lawrence. Later, Garnet also helped to promote the careers of Jean Rhys, Henry Green and T.E. Lawrence, among others. He was, in the end, someone who, in motion words, played a very significant role in creating the whole large story of English fiction writing before and after the war. To tell us more about him is Andrew Motion himself. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Very nice to be talking to you. It, are we going to end up considering, I wonder, Garnet in, in silhouette biography, notable really for who he knew rather than who he actually was? Yes, I think that's probably more true than not, in the sense that figures who, characters who do the sort of work that Garnet did, and one can think, and we might come to this, one can think of various people who occupy a similar sort of role today. It's, it's part of what they do, if they do it well, to, to be not entirely visible behind the larger figures whom they help to shape and promote and so on. So I think, if, I think it's fair to say that Garnet's whole career in that to kind of in that respect, a kind of modesty, sort of self-effacement in the interests of promoting a, a good that's going to be enacted by other people. Because he never really, he, he did write and he, he, wrote, he wrote books, but yeah. it, it, never really, yes. it never really came no. off, did it? <laughs> no, I mean, that's another very odd thing about such figures, isn't it? That often, not, not always, but, but often, they're brilliant at encouraging the people around them to produce the, the best that they, the other people can, but when it comes to their own practice for other short of the standards that they expect to find in others. Well, you see, I wonder, I was going to ask you the question, can you think of a great editor who is also a great writer? Eliot. Um, yeah. Is the, the first one that comes to mind, I suppose. But I, I think, I mean, one of the reasons that he comes so quickly to mind is that he is a um, rather an exception to the rule. I mean, it does oddly seem to be, and I say it again often, not, not always, but often the case, that people who are brilliant about spotting defects and opportunities in, in other people's work can't act on their own on their own advice. I wonder why that when is. It, when it comes to their own stuff. Yeah, why is that? I, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know, except to say that I think it's a kind of special gift. To be, to be able, able to do to, both. To be able to do it, exactly. But Garnet was an excellent editor. He was, he was excellent at both spotting yeah. people um, and then working with them and bringing out the, yeah. the best in them. Yes, so, very tellingly. I mean, um, the case of Lawrence proves that perhaps more vividly than any other because Lawrence was so extraordinarily able to fall out with people and <laughs> pick, pick quarrels with them. Um, he and Garnet managed to remain friends through the very uh, difficult editing process that Garnet undertook with Lawrence's very early fiction. Well, it was a very, very heavy edit. Very, yeah, massively heavy. I mean, in fact, it's hard to think of heavier edits really than that. I mean, it was a completely sort of bookmaking job. 
And was Garnet responsible for changing the the title or suggesting the change of title from um, uh, Paul Morrill to Two Sons and Lovers? Given, given that the book and that he sort of split the, the manuscript into two parts, it, mm. it seems to me quite likely that the title came with came as part of that process. Mm. And the book was dedicated to Garnet. Indeed, absolutely. I mean, as further proof of Lawrence's continuing <laughs> and surprisingly courteous feelings of indebtedness <laughs> to him. Is there a school of Garnet, do you think, Andrew, that, that you would be able well, to point to? I was wondering about that. I mean, it didn't feel quite within the bounds of the review proper to speculate about those about such things. There certainly isn't a school of Garnet's writing, because if you say yourself, there's no example to follow, really, there. Yeah. except don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but as far as editorial practice goes, I mean, I was casting my mind around trying to think of contemporary editors who perform something like that role. And I couldn't actually come up with that many names, partly because, as people often say, editing these days is of, often, again, often not always, undertaken in a less sort of drastic way than it used to be yeah. in days gone by. I mean, I think we just don't expect editors and publishers to do as much editing as they, as they used to do. Is that because we publish so many uh, books that, the, is, that editors and publishers are kind of they're just getting partly their heads that, down and churning yeah. it out. Partly they seem to be sort of rushing about doing other things. I and mean, I don't quite know what it is that they do do, but they don't <laughs> seem to spend as much time ed- editing as they, as they used to do. But I think in the case of early work by writers that they take on, they actually expect a lot of that editing work to have been undertaken by the creative writing courses in which those writers have very often been a member. Mm. Yeah, and I often feel when I'm... I, feel it, I felt it more when I was running creative writing MAs in England than I do over here because the, the sort of trajectory isn't quite the same here in the US from MFA courses into getting published. It seems to take slightly longer here. But at Royal Holloway and at UEA, I felt that I was very often doing the work with students who were going to get published that in the old days it would have been absolutely inevitable for an editor within the publishing house itself to undertake. So that that may play a role in it, I, I think. I suppose one of the things that's so interesting about Edward Garnett's career, though, is that it spans... He was born in 1868, so presumably he started working right. in the 1880s and then he yeah. died in 1937. So he spans, yeah. you know, Victorian realism through to modernism exactly. and 1910, exactly. the, the, the year human exactly. character changed. So, That's right. Well, in fact, that, that was the thing that interested me more than almost anything else about the book. That I mean, I, perhaps I'm going to anticipate what you were going to say in saying what, what I'm about to say, which is that I think people tend to think of pre-war, pre-First World War writing as being one thing. Then the war happens and it blows everything to pieces. Yeah. Then modernism arrives and, and we're in a completely different world, um, a new planet even. But actually, when you look at the people that Garnet was editing and at the consistency of his taste in pre-war and post-war years, you realise that that's, that sort of bifurcation is much too simple an account of what was really happening, which is that despite the great catastrophic interruption of the First World War, a lot of the things that were coming onto the scene before the war broke out actually continued where the survivors were able to do the continuing in the years after the war. It's, it's, it struck me, Andrew, that a lot of the names that, um, that, that, that we refer to when we talk about Garnet, I wonder how widely read they are. I wonder if there's a whole generation of, of novelists yeah. that are sort of slipping away from our collective ken yeah. a bit, you know, sort of Arnold Bennett yeah. is oh, mentioned, quite. you know, Cunningham, Graham, Norman Douglas, these names... Yeah. Absolutely. I wonder, fifty Absolutely. years ago, there'd be there'd be more to people's fingertips than they are now. I, I'm sure that's right. Um, I mean, that's partly because certain writers go, go out of fashionable for one reason or another. It's partly because our attention is increasingly drawn these days to writers who reveal or have something to do with issues that press on us more strongly than they used to in the old days. I mean, the, what I'm particularly thinking of here is issues around diversity of one kind or another. So it's possible that the likes of Bennett and those other names that you mentioned, Cunningham Graham, certainly are being edged out of the sort of stream of attention by other writers who previously, who might have been contemporary with them, but have been rather neglected because they, they precisely because they weren't in the mainstream. Is that so a bad is, is that a bad thing? Do you think, uh, Andrew? I'm no, just... I was going to say I think it's things and roundabouts there. I mean, I think you lose something because you lose a part of the picture. But the gain, of course, is that be made to realise that what people identify as the mainstream while, it's, while they're actually in it, I mean at the moment of observation, might not 
in the, under the eye of history turn out to be the mainstream at all. Yeah. Well, so for example, we've we've uh, more or less lost Harold Manhood. He <laughs> 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 sounds a fascinating <laughs> proposition. Yeah. The author, of course, of Nightseed, <laughs> The Bald Women <laughs> and Gay Agony. I know. I mean, I, when I read that in the book, I just thought, is somebody pulling my leg here? Well, I, I looked um, into him because, funnily enough, I was I was uh, reading this on the train, and <laughs> and um, just as I was going through Haywards Heath, I looked up who Harold Manhood was, manhood, and he lived Harold Manhood, yeah. um, and I found yeah. that he had, in fact, apparently lived in a railway carriage in the woods somewhere around Haywards Heath. He, I, funnily enough, I looked him up too in order to kind of reassure myself <laughs> that I wasn't first one wasn't being pulled on me, and I I noticed the living of the railway carriage as well. So actually, maybe Harold Manhood's time is. No, uh, manhood under attack, I think, is the, the obvious uh, uh, headline. I, I'm sorry, we've got the Books of the Year feature coming up, in, and a couple of people have named this book that you've reviewed, The Uncommon Reader by Helen Smith. I'm, I'm interested I'm by... I'm very pleased they have. Do you think it's a good book? I mean, who's it aimed at? Who, who reads... Who, who is? In... I think it's a very good book in the sense that it's very difficult. And I think, as I tried to say in the review, I can't really imagine anybody else now needing to write the life of Edward Garnett. I mean, it just sort of does the job very well. The style is pretty plain. Um, I don't get a very vivid sense of him as a physical presence. In fact, I, I re- because I was originally sent the proof of the book in which there were no photographs, I, I noticed in a way that I don't normally feel when I'm reading books that I was extremely anxious to, to know what all these people looked like, and especially him. Yeah. Um, and there isn't much sense of physical reality given given by the by the author, but. The compensations are um, very rich, and they're all to do with the thoroughness of her research. And you feel that she spent ages in archives looking at precisely the sort of names that have slipped from our attention that you were talking about a moment ago, and, and thinking about them, and and managing to stitch together a story that runs through many, many years with a, a strange and impressive consistency. And I. So for all those reasons, I think it, it really is a very good piece of work. We've got a picture of him actually to accompany the review, and he is a sort of great, slightly jowly owly sort that, of uh, uh, slightly uh, jowly owly, slightly sort of bloated looking, yeah, puzzled, un- unkempt. Was he happy? Do you think was it was it a happy life? Well, his private life was a mess. Yeah, I mean, part of me immediately wants to say whose isn't, but um, <laughs> so it's it's not. I don't want to make him seem so sort of so extraordinary in that respect, but. The unorthodoxies of his marriage to the also, of course, very in- interesting Constance Garnett seem to cause a good deal of unhappiness for him and the people of the other people involved. Though they could stay married through it all, so I think the, the satisfactions probably come from. I mean, there are undoubtedly satisfactions in that complicated private life, but the satisfactions of the work must have been enormous for him, and he, for all the frustrations of his own his own career as a writer, the rewards of seeing the success of others whom he, he rated and helped to discover themselves were, were great. Just just finally, we've got to go, Andrew, but I, I just wanted to place on record, you're set to be a, the judge, one of the judges of the TLS Poetry Prize, which we've brought yes, back. Yes, I'm braced. We're waiting for I it. hope you are braced, because we've had more than 4,000 <laughs> entries, um, which are, uh, we're being blind judged, they're being currently assessed by various <clears throat> people at the TLS um, so it's in honour of our former poetry editor, uh, Mick Himmler, and, um, yes, and we're I'm very, very great. pleased about that. Uh, well, I'm hopeful we're going to do it every year, Andrew, but you, you're, you may well be in a decisive figure in this, because if you uh, throw up your arms <laughs> and say there are no good poems in the ones we send you, then we might have to think again. But um, um, <laughs> I'm sure there'll be something, or more than something, but I'm sure there'll be very good things there. And I think it's a great thing that you're doing, and I, I particularly like it being named for Mick, who was a very dear friend of mine and a, a wonderful poet himself. Right. For all those reasons, I'm, I'm thrilled it's happening. Well, we look forward to seeing what you make of it. Andrew Motion, thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure. Of course, uh, Edward Garnett suffered the misfortune of having a famous son. He was the lover of, of Duncan Grant. He then married the daughter of Duncan Grant with Vanessa Bell, who's Virginia Woolf's sister. So... Bonnie Garnett yeah. married his gay lover's daughter, yeah. who was 26 years old. Funny thing to do in some ways. Well, very Bloomsbury. Yeah, well, this, uh, this thing, <laughs> and uh, although we were talking about the, the complicated private life of Edward Guy, it's amazing how many times when we, when we look at the lives of these people, <laughs> yeah. particularly in that sort of Victorian mm. onwards period, mm. they're always shacking up with each mm. other, weren't they? It's bohemian world, maybe. Mm. Could have done with a life edit. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, that's a great fact, so he... <laughs> His, and it's difficult to remember yeah, the his audience. Gay, his gay lover's Duncan daughter. Duncan Grant, yes. 
had a daughter with Vanessa Bell. Yeah. And that daughter then married Bunny. Bunny, Bunny Garnet. Bunny Garnet. Takes all sorts. <laughs> takes all sorts that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to Andrew Motion Mary Beard and Rowan Mateson do go to the-tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's edition of the TLS which contains alongside all our classics a gushing review of the new Simon Sharma book some thoughts on Balfour and Bernard Shaw and differing accounts of Vietnam next week is our books of the year special hooray some TLS editors including Thea and I, who have scarcely read a book between us, will gather in this place to conceal our own inadequacies with verve and spirit. <laughs> Are you prepared yet, Thea? I am. Really? I will be by next week. I'll yeah. read a, a book a day till then. Yeah, I'm going to start reading. I'm going to start reading a book now. <laughs> Until then, from Thea and It'll from... Be Dorothy the... Dunnett. That could work, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'll be reading Dorothy Dunnett and then I'll suspiciously say, oh yeah, it's my book of the year. <laughs> Until then, from Thea and me, goodbye. <laughs> deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.